Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. G, 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 take me away. G, 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 take me today. Welcome to another episode of the Gary Hour. I'm your host, Gary Levitt, and this week I got to talk to Sheriff Bob Seidenberg, the Sheriff of Good Times. He's called that because he's been around the Greenwich Village folk music scene since the 1950s. So we're going to hear a lot about Greenwich Village, New York City, travels, getting older, staying young, came over just before his 80th birthday, and I really enjoyed my conversation, and I hope you do too. This episode is brought to you by Future Moments, makers of mobile apps for content creation. If you're a video maker, musician, podcast, or voiceover artist, search for Future Moments in the App Store, and they probably have something that will make your life easier. Okay, Subscribe to the show, tell your friends, email us, thegaryhour at gmail. I want to hear your guest suggestions. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Sheriff Bob. You can check him out. Links are in the show notes. Enjoy. Here, Sheriff Bob, they call you the Sheriff of Good Times. I am the Sheriff of Good Times. You are uh, kind of a veteran of the Greenwich Village folk scene. I, I certainly am that because I'm old, but I was around in the late 50s and six, early 60s playing at the Gaslight behind the beat poets like Wavy Gravy, and that's where I started my village career. Uh-huh. And I sang at the clubs there. And then all of a sudden, I had two kids, and you know, it wasn't going to be playing in the gaslight wasn't going to do it and i went i was in the film business also and i went into that full time even though i never stopped playing i was always doing that so but, you, you when you were playing behind the you call they're called beat poets yeah the beat poets so I, what is a beat poet it's not a rapper well no it's the 50s you know mm-hmm. it's you know it was the poetry of the 50s of you know more storytelling than than poetry 
Did it have a rhyme and a rhythm? I would say it had a rhythm and a rhyme. I think it was more on the story. It depends who it was. Wavy Gravy is still doing it, and he's just a great storyteller. Mm -hmm. And they usually have a very good point, and they're part of his life. And I would play a little recorder or something behind the poets, and then... How old were you at the time? I was uh, 19. Nice. I was... uh, And... uh, you know, then between the poet, I would sing my Pete Seeger songs with the banjo because I had became a folk singer only, I guess, two years before that. I was in college, and the clarinet was going to get me into the all-male marching band or the all-male orchestra, which didn't really appeal to me. And I heard a Pete Seeger concert, and I, I always loved singing, and Pete Seeger just blew me away. I said, this, this is what I want to do. The very next day, I went on to Mass Avenue and bought a secondhand five-string banjo, and Pete Seeger's five-string banjo instruction book, which I still have. And at the time, it was a new form of music. Well, the folk revival had just started. Mm-hmm. Uh, Certainly, the Weavers, you know, were and Pete Seeger were a bit back on, you know, the politics of the McCarthy era had sort of ended because Pete couldn't play for a lot of places. But too uh, rebellious, too rebellious, too left wing. You know, right? Con- I mean, if you look, I mean, he was up before the House Un-American Committee for his supposedly communist leadings, and he brought his banjo and sang songs to them and drove them crazy. <laughs> but he was basically blacklisted from performing except at colleges and you know, folk clubs until well into the 60s. So you were turned on to this in the, in the late 50s? Late, yeah, 1957. Okay, so I just no. want to paint a picture yeah. because I think we just take the modern day for granted. In the 50s, you weren't exposed to so much i mean you didn't have the internet where there's a million different things you could look on i mean don't your only exposure to things is maybe on television or if someone showed you something or living in new york city living in new york city helps people coming through yeah i I, my father was a great musician and and they had a lot of friends who were in the theater world and the dance world so as a youngster i was exposed to every kind of music your parents were in the arts my father was a cellist and a conductor and my mother started an art gallery in the 50s and so that was the world i grew up in in new york city right here in new york city i went to a nice quaker school on 16th street friends (laughs) seminary so i am a city boy mm-hmm. but as soon as i could turn a radio dial i was listening to country music mm-hmm. and i always loved to sing but i got up to college i was 17 i looked maybe 14 no women were paying any attention to me but all of a sudden i had a five-string banjo and 10 songs and there was wellesley and brandeis and you know changed my life for sure mm-hmm. and wrecked my academic career at the same time the mu- music will do that to some people. It is, it's a wonderful thing. Yeah. So you're playing at the Gaslight, and that's where Bob Dylan came up and a lot of uh, other... That, I met Dylan there at, uh, with Wavy Gravy uh, in a little apartment above the Gaslight, actually above the Kettle of Fish, which was uh, the bar where everybody hung out right next to the Gaslight, because the Gaslight only served coffee. Uh-huh. So if you wanted to drink, you had to go next door. But... Uh, Dylan was hanging out. This must have been like 62 or so, mm-hmm. you know, just after his first record came out. And So he know, wasn't really famous yet, but is popular in the scene? I would say in the, the village world, he was already famous. Right. You know, Dave Van Ronk was part of that scene. Tom Paxton had just come in. You know, so there was a tremendously active folk revival in the village. 
starting in the late 50s. Did it, you feel it at the time that there was a buzz, there was something new happening? I was too young. To, you know, it all seemed normal to me. Right. Because you, you had no context, no Exactly, no contact. You know, I didn't know how, how special. Which reminds me of a story. John Brent, who was one of the village poets, he, I said, oh, this is great here. He said, Bob, you should have been here five years ago. It was really cool. Uh-huh. So that was back in 52. I think, you know, the village has always been cool mm-hmm. and is still cool. Mm-hmm. In yeah, its, it's own a, way, and yeah, and where you, wherever you're coming from, yeah, there's no one scene is the neat thing. Yeah, and the scene has moved out of the village to Brooklyn. You know, most of the musicians are living in Brooklyn, and there's a lot of places to play here. And uh, the village is a little bit of a relic these days. But I'm trying to keep it going, doing shows there, as is Rick Snell over at Mona's, and you know, there's. There's mm-hmm. still something special about the village, and everybody can get there. Yeah, absolutely. It's still, all the subways are still that's right. They all towards. Had, that's right. And since I live there, I can you know go anywhere. Mm-hmm. So let's let's keep yeah. it chronological. Yeah. This is this is kind of fascinating. So you're hanging out at the gaslight, and the when what what were you doing next? Did you want to be a professional musician? You no, had, you, I, I never thought I was going to be a professional musician. I was. Uh, I went to Neighborhood Playhouse. I was going to be the, the world-famous director, and I did get into making films and video mm-hmm. for a profession for about 30 years. Okay. But I never stopped playing. I mean, it was always parties, and I did a lot of work with the Ensemble Studio Theater, a theater group in New York, and, you know, the, everybody liked to sing, and I could play and sing so i'd led i've been leading group sings all my life it seems mm-hmm. and i really like doing it but in about uh you know i i started uh, doing documentaries here in new york and then worked for many years on a children's program called big blue marble which was documentaries about kids around the world and i worked as a director there and producer and that was great because we got to travel all kinds of great places and uh make films and we were shooting in film in those days there was no video yet right so you're traveling in, inside the u.s and each show had uh somebody from a kid from the u.s and one from somewhere else so mm-hmm. i did a whole bunch of shows in russia india oh wow there were three of us who were producing it in the beginning of each year rick where do you want to go bob where, you know so we would and then try to dream up a story that justified that trip yeah which we managed I think uh, growing up in New York City, you get kind of spoiled because there's so much here that if you go to another American city, it always seems kind of less. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think, you know, San Francisco is a great city, you know, but it's compared to New York, it's a little town. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, especially you you come out, you know, realize how big New York is. I just took a half hour subway ride from Greenwich Village into a place I've never been in my life. And it's still New York City. Yeah. It's my home. Mm-hmm. But I've, I've never walked these streets before. Still, there's always something new to Absolutely. Even in Manhattan, I'll you know, go on and say, yeah, I, I don't think I've ever been on the street in my life. Mm-hmm. I think it's fun. Yeah, it's hard. I moved to San Francisco after college, and it was definitely like, ooh, there's, this is going to get real small real quick. Growing up in New York, you get spoiled to that. I think so. Yeah. So you grew up here, too. I did, yeah. What part uh, actually on Long Island, but about a half-hour train ride. So I'd come in all the time in high school. Save, saving grace. Yes. <laughs> so uh, what led you to pursue filmmaking and not stay? Because that, that village folk scene sounds so vibrant. I think I'd I didn't be... think I was that good. 
uh-huh. and I wasn't writing songs. So I, you mm-hmm. know, it was you know, you had all these incredible songwriters, mm-hmm. you know, Paxton, Dylan, you know, Gordon Lightfoot, and I wasn't doing that. I was singing old folk songs, and for me, it was more about the social scene than becoming a good musician. And it, it remained that day that way until I was doing a film in Nashville for the New York Public Library about uh, the role of the printing press in the French Revolution. Uh-huh. And there was a 18th century working press in Nashville at the museum there and a guy who could actually operate it and talk about how it worked. So I went down to Nashville to do the set up the shoot there and I walked into Gruen's, the music store there, and I said, I need something new to play. I'd been playing guitar and banjo. I looked around, I said, mandolin, yeah, it's tuned in fifths. I, I don't think I can deal with that. <laughs> and then there was a whole wall of dobros there. I said, oh, I know about dobros. I used to listen to Flat and Scruggs and, you know, Josh Graves. And I just said, okay, I'll, I'll get one. And it, uh, within a year, took over my life. I went to uh, Augusta Heritage Festival. Jerry Douglas was giving a workshop in the Dobro, and I always was a finger picker, so I, I, got, I was already decent at it. But then I saw what an incredible instrument the Dobro is and uh, took over my life, and that was 27 years ago that I've been... I'm still trying to learn how to play the Dobro, but yeah. you know, it's, it's a tough instrument. Drive were you crazy? Were you uh, as obsessed with filmmaking as you became with music? No, no. It, to me, uh, I'm not an obsessive person, mm-hmm. so it even surprised me that I became obsessed with the dobro because I sort of have lived on luck. It seems my, my, I don't. Plan, I'm not very good at planning ahead, and luckily, my life has gone really smoothly for you know somebody my age nice kids nice wife grandkids mm-hmm. you know, I, I made enough money that i can now be a musician again mm-hmm. and uh you didn't get priced out of new york city which is well that that i was smart about that too is that I, when i was 20 uh-huh. uh we bought a place just on down payment and have moved four times and now we have a nice place in soho for the last 33 years and i have a recording studio there very smart move but it was you know but did, did i know it was going to be a smart move then no mm-hmm. i believe in luck and i've had a, a lot of luck <laughs> I, you know and and randomness of life you good know. karma maybe I I think that's an invention inve, invention of uh, us subspecies, not uh, a, a suspect species, the human beings, uh-huh. you know, karma, God, and all that stuff. I think you know it's nice to think about those things, but I think it has to do with luck and randomness, and you know who your parents were, where you were brought up, what culture you were brought up in, and those of us who grew up here in New York started out lucky. Mm-hmm. Just yeah. by being here. By being here. You know, and in being the United exposed States. to, right, being in the United States, never having to worry about where your food is going to come from. Is somebody going to bomb my city? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know it's, being it's, Jewish in uh, Nashville, probably in the 50s, was not a terrific thing. But in New York <laughs> yeah. City, nobody even thought about it. You know, whether you're Jewish or Quaker, you know, nobody, it wasn't part of. Unless you were brought up in a very religious community, which I wasn't mm-hmm. at all, 
um, you know, you're a New Yorker. That's your religion. It's good you have that perspective because I think if you never left, like you said, you traveled doing the documentaries, you might just take that for granted. This yeah. is just the way life is. No, there is. There's only one. I travel a lot. Mm -hmm. I, I, I love to see things. And recently, I was in Shanghai, and I even got to play bluegrass in Shanghai, which was great. Uh huh. Uh, but that's a city like New York. That's just alive. Yeah. I, I don't speak Chinese, so it, you know, and most people there don't speak English. But you can just feel it. It feels like New York. You know, it doesn't sleep, and it's exciting. Very lively. Yeah. So after, so we're, we're about in the '60s now. Mm -hmm. You started to be, get into film and do documentary. Yeah, and, work. And I did. I was always involved with theater too. Mm -hmm. Again, for more for fun because I, you know, I loved. I had got, I graduated someplace, neighborhood playhouse. Mm -hmm. I never graduated college, but I did graduate something. Did you drop out of college? I was in the middle of my junior year, told to take a semester to mature, and here I am. <laughs> still maturing, no. still trying to, still trying. That's it, still trying. <laughs> who told you to drop out of mature? The geology professor who was my advisor. I. I went to MIT because I thought I was really smart. And then I got out to MIT and I saw I wasn't quite that smart. And I really wasn't ready to do the work. Mm. I, had, I had my banjo. I had a car. Uh, I was on the baseball team because MIT has terrible teams. So I was able to make the baseball team and even start. And you're, you're, you're still discovering who you are. Uh, I, I hope so. It sounded like it. I mean, you like just, just discovered the banjo. You recently well, discovered... I, I like adventure in life. I mean, I think, I think life has to be about discovery and improvement. Mm -hmm. you, know, it, you can just sit back and binge to watch television all day long. And, mm -hmm. you know, I guess it's satisfying in some low-level way. But I think, I mean, like last night, I was playing at Mona's with some of the best musicians in the world. Mm -hmm. And I'm certainly not that. Every so, Monday night at Mo Mona's. Every Monday night at Mona's for the last six years, Rick Snell has run an incredible jam. And, and the people who have moved to New York, you know, like Alex Hargraves and Mike Robinson, you know, who are top professionals in their 20s, mm -hmm. they're there playing, you know, and it, it makes me practice because, you know, I don't want to be a fool with those guys, you know. Keeping they're friends you on your toes. And they, you know, we work together. Absolutely. It keeps me on my toes, you know, and, and performing three, four times a week, which I only recently have started doing, you know, it, it certainly keeps me on my toes. Yeah, I think if, if someone was, if an unsuspecting individual walked into Mona's on a Monday night and just kind of sensed the energy and what was going on, they'd realize they stumbled into something kind of special. And that happens all the time. Cause I like to talk to the people who were there. And often, you know, oh, they heard about it or they were walking down the street and they're amazed. Mm -hmm. I had a, a woman who was there last night who I've known for years but had never come. And she was there and, and she couldn't believe it. She said, you know, how does this happen? Does anybody pay you guys? And I said, no, it's, you know, Rick passes the hat around. You know, the musicians get a little money, but it's about... Everybody just loves being there and playing, and you know it keeps going sometimes till four in the morning. Was that kind of camaraderie similar to as it was in the gaslight? I don't think so at all. I oh. think what's happening now is very special. Mm -hmm. I think then it was much more about performing and you know getting famous and you know and writing great songs. I mean, you know, but that that I don't recall that kind of camaraderie. You know, there were jams in Washington Square. But not like it is today, you know, the seriousness of these young players. You know, they're, this is, they're not fooling around. This is deadly serious for all of them, you know. And you see it in their playing mm -hmm. and in their attitudes. 
So the, would you say the difference is, because it sounds to me like back in the folk gaslight days that it was more about the individual and the song? Absolutely. And did you feel like were, the, the music industry was kind of caving in on the place and it was looking for their people to make some money with? I, I was un, I, I'd say I was unaware of what the music industry was doing as I am today. Well, even the music industry, <laughs> that's probably good. I mean, the, the, there was an industry then and it, hardly there isn't an industry now. It's all, you know, everybody is their own promoter, their own record company, mm-hmm. you know, except, you know, it, and nobody is making money out of... Uh, selling cds or you know it's all spotify and and the only money is made touring yeah you know which is kind of back in how originally was yeah, before. back in the 30s yeah yeah you know but you know radio when i was growing up you know there was top 10 radio and there was a country station right but there was you know there was a classical music station you know but maybe four music stations there was no fm yet or yeah. at least i wasn't aware of it and so people bought music that they heard on those things, and you know, they bought records. You even know, even recording vinyl. music hasn't been around for all that long in the grand scheme of things. No. I think what really changed things was radio. Because mm-hmm. before, I mean, radio started in the early 30s, you know, where there were powerful stations. Because people didn't travel. Right. You know, very few people traveled. So the music that people heard was what was around them. Yeah whatever was played by that group of people. And all of a sudden in the 30s, white people started hearing black music, Mexican, you know, all these things, you know, were heard. And that's created, you know, eventually rock and roll. You know, all of a sudden, you know, you had Little Richard. Yeah. You know, and Elvis Presley. And, you know, that, that changed the world for sure. I mean, it's kind of amazing to me that it's been less than 100 years. I mean, that's not that much time that we've had recorded music. It's pretty amazing i mean before yeah. that what did you, how did you hear different kinds of music you only heard you only heard what was played well, and there was yeah. a huge business in sheet music and publishing music because that was the only way you could disseminate music right. and people like Haydn and handel made their living partially out of publishing music and sending it all over europe physically be, publishing it on physically the printing press. you know working with a publisher and getting it out there. and yeah. they collected bach i just read a biography of bach he collected huge amounts of music from italy particularly mm-hmm. you know and, and his father did so that was how it was communicated obviously they, they heard it all the time too because you know people went and heard music in church Right. every week but it must be so different to just have music in front of you written on paper i mean you you kind of well obviously uh, you know have to know how to read music but then you're yeah. you're making up the in- you're making up the sounds in your mind right. but only the musicians did that you know i don't think they were you know i'm sure people played instruments for fun then too but i i think it, i don't really know i think more people are playing now than ever i would imagine so yeah yeah, and there's, I mean, anyone can get a lesson on YouTube for free, so that probably yeah. helps. Yeah, and there's ukuleles and guitars and all these instruments one can learn to play. Yeah. If I you're mean, willing to spend the time to work at it. Yeah, there's that story with John Lennon and Paul McCartney taking a bus for like an hour or two just to learn a B7 chord that somebody, they heard someone knew this B7 chord, so they traveled to find this B7 chord. I think about that every yeah. time there's a B7 chord in one of their songs. Yeah, I learned that chord pretty early on. <laughs> well, we had more, right? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we had books. You know, I, yeah. I, I didn't, you know, I learned 
I had a few teachers, but mostly I learned from books and, and playing. You, know? you did. And to me, it's always been about the song. I mean, I love singing and telling stories through song. Mm -hmm. And only when I started playing dobro did I start thinking about an instrument to solo on. Because for me before, the, the guitar was just something to sing with yeah and you know i got good at rhythm guitar i never thought about getting better even it was and then the dobro took over and to this day i'm trying to get better it, it's not an easy instrument it looks it's easy to play it a little bit and mm -hmm. sound okay on it because the instrument sounds beautiful and i can teach somebody how to make it sound beautiful but and it's an open tuning right it's an open g tuning yeah and minor chords are a bitch. <laughs> and if you're trying to... It's an instrument because the frets are there only as markers. You don't press your finger against it. And so... You, you play with you, a slide. We play with a slide. So if I am a quarter inch off, you know, that's a half a tone. Right. And if you're a sixteenth of an inch off, you're still flat or shot. You know, so <laughs> you, you have to watch it as you're singing. But I try... I'm, I've been trying very hard not to watch and see you know mm -hmm. how bad it comes you know mm -hmm. like it's tuned to g so if i'm playing in c c is on the fifth fret mm -hmm. to go up to the f the four chord that's all the way up on the tenth fret that's a big move you're trying to use your ears and not your eyes yeah but if you're using your ears you're too late <laughs> then you say oh god I did this. right yeah luckily you can slide into things so i think what i do is i i cheat a little bit by knowing i'm a little below the note and then i'll ease it into it I yeah think my so fingers have done that for me you're still challenging yourself i think you know first of all i'm getting older which makes it a challenge in itself mm. you know i'm i'm about to be 80 which really surprises the hell out of me because it surprises the hell out of me i don't think of myself as that and hopefully i don't look that old but you know i'm starting to feel like last night people with some very nice filmmakers i started talking to and they bought me drinks you know so i had three whiskeys last night uh -huh. which is and I got on this, I was talking outside, and I hailed a taxi, and I started stumbling. And luckily, Jason Barisoff, nice young man who's a good friend, said, Bob, I'll help you. And, and I actually needed help getting, no, it was the alcohol. <laughs> but I, I realized this morning when I woke up in bed, and I was, I hadn't fallen, you know, yeah, maybe I'd slow up a little, just a little. <laughs> cut out the drinking anyway mm -hmm. yeah but at least you have an excuse you'd be like it wasn't the alcohol it was my age yeah that's right <laughs> so what so let's go back to the 60s yeah. did you that whole gaslight scene kind of did it came to an end right or it just kind of well, exploded it, well it it changed man it exploded it mm -hmm. went on uh john i can't remember his name the guy who owned it when I first started. He was a crazy man, and you know, but he believed in the poetry. And I think all venue owners are. <laughs> Maybe true. <laughs> uh, it drives people crazy because I know some people who weren't crazy before they started. Uh -huh. And then, you know, I think that kind of business in New York, it's terrible. I mean, people have said to me all along, you know, Bob, why don't you open a place? You know, and I said, why? Right. Yeah. Why do I want to get involved with the state tax people, with the liquor authority? You know, what on earth would make me want to do that? Mm -hmm. yeah. So, but back in the city, then it was sold maybe in like 63, maybe the last year I played it. And then it became a huge folk venue mm -hmm. for well into the early 70s, and everybody played there. 
Uh, and it was, it was still a small room, but it was well regarded. So everyone yeah, wanted but there to were play also there. the bottom. There were maybe five. The village gate was a you know which was on uh, Bleecker and uh, I guess West Broadway. Uh, it was a great performance space. Yeah. Uh, the bottom line, you know, none of these places exist anymore. Did you see Johnny Mitchell perform? I did. I saw Johnny. I mean, it was easy to see everybody. Yeah. That must have been amazing. Yeah, then, a and room. I was, you know, I was, even though I wasn't performing in the clubs, I was going to them because I love the music. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that, but that moved out of there by the 70s, you know, kind of moved to the West Coast, that kind of, the, you know, what became the Eagles and the Mamas and the Papas, you know, kind of came out of New York. Right. The Loving Spoonful, John Sebastian, you know, that was part of the scene. Mm-hmm. And I think the the music of the 60s, the folk songs of the 60s, are great. And I've tried to bring a lot of that music into the bluegrass world. Mm-hmm. You know, and Donovan, you know, the song Colors. Yeah. I love that song. It's a great bluegrass song. You mm-hmm. know, a lot of these songs, you know, came out of the 60s. And then there's the wonderful songs of the 50s of Ernest Tubb and Hank Williams and I don't hear much after that that I want to sing. Hmm. You know, that I've heard. You know, yeah. maybe some 70s stuff, Little Feet, you know, they're like, you know, and, and uh, James Taylor, and, you know. But it seemed like that was a golden era of American Americana music. You it's, probably saw James Taylor in a small room then, too, huh? I saw no, I saw him on a big stage once. But, you did, yeah. okay. <laughs> but, yeah, but he's 70s already, you know. And, and, right. And Paul Simon was certainly part of a mm. part of the New York scene, doing very different kind of music. But when you listen to his songs now, they're good songs. Yeah, you know, you can play them in a bluegrass setting. You can play them in, a, you know, I play a lot with reggae bands down in the islands, and I do the same songs I do, except I have a reggae drummer and a reggae bass player. A song's still, a song. That's right. A song, King of the Road is still King of the Road. Yeah. You know, it depends, you know, and if I set a tempo, you know, and if the rhythm gets changed, you know, I can follow somebody else's, especially if you have a drummer who's going to do it his way. Yes. You never can. Drummer could really change a song. Yes. And you can't fight it. Right. Yeah. There's no point. Yeah. Because they're probably bigger and stronger than you. Yeah. And they'll beat you up. Yeah. And they're louder. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's take a little break and we'll refill the water. I will do that. So did you lose interest in that scene? What what made you go? No, what was well, your next? Well, it was more that I, I, w- I was making movies and doing theater. And even though I never stopped playing, I didn't, I didn't have a band. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't out playing in the commercial sense, but I always played. I've never, I don't think I've gone more than a day without playing some instrument. It's just what I have to do. Yeah, so you were doing that while you were making documentaries? Yeah, and I was, you know, I always, when I traveled, I always took my guitar with me, especially in Russia, because, you know, I could sing Beatles songs, and all of, you know, couldn't speak a word of Russian, but you speak Beatles songs, sing Beatles songs, and I brought Frisbees with me, because they hadn't had Frisbees yet, uh-huh. and wherever we went, I had a Russian crew, we were a hit. 
they had never seen frisbees in in places we went and they knew the beatles songs and they knew the beatles songs and they knew 16 tons which really surprised me i sang it one night and everybody sang along i yeah. said how is that possible that you know 16 tons and apparently the russians had used it as propaganda showing how bad america was you know the the song you know you load 16 tons what do you get another day older and deeper in debt uh -huh. I mean, it showed the, the unfairness. Mm. You know, it was Merle Travis talking about the reality of what a miner's life was and wrote a great song doing it, which right. people to this day like, because it's a good song. You mm -hmm. know, it's not about the politics or coal miners. It's just a cool song. What documentary were you doing in Russia? Uh, a program called Big Blue Marble, which was about kids around the world. And... Uh, I did one about a kid who was uh, driving go-karts racing in uh, Uzbekistan, which was then part of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. I did another story about in Lithuania, which was part in a couple in Moscow. It was just, you know, about kids. Mm -hmm. And I had the same Russian crew each time I went. How long were you, were you I would, living there? I would go for like 10 days. Okay. And on each one, and uh, I went once for maybe twenty days, where I did two shows on, in one, and then one other time where I did one. What were some of the main cultural differences you found? Well, they drink much more than anybody I'd ever. I mean, we would sit down at breakfast in the hotel, and there would be a bottle of wine and a bottle of vodka on the table, wow. and they would try to get me drunk because I I don't drink very well, yeah. <laughs> especially for breakfast. No, I just found that it, you know this is back in Brezhnev days, but I don't think it's changed that much. There isn't a culture of hard work there. Film crew worked four or five hours a day. That's a full day work for these guys. Oh, that sounds great. <laughs> yeah, but it's un very unproductive. Right. Right. And do you think that's just part of the booze, or is that just the culture? I think that you know, I think it's a depressed people. You know, mm. why mean, would why is are they why I are mean, they depressed? Look at their government. Look at their lives. Mm -hmm. Look at the health system. Look at the uh, declining birth rate. The de they're dying younger. Well, no. What well, is it? Is it lack of hope? Like they feel like things are. I think they're run by a criminal conspiracy. Sure, mm -hmm. you know. If you're part of the elite, it's a good deal, right. for, unless you cross somebody. And they, they, I don't think that you can really, you know, you could be a gangster or part of the party or you don't have a particularly good life there. Yeah, and there's not much uh, upward mobility to make it? I don't think so, unless you're, you know, a crook. Right. In some way. I, you know, and it's the education system is, you know, the whole place is kind of falling apart from what i can see i haven't been there in 10 years so right. you know i've visited back but you know i read what's going on there yeah. i wouldn't want to live there the weather stinks too yeah where, where else have you traveled and i've been india a lot of places there uh what what, what was that again like? for a big blue marble and also for fun visits and mm -hmm. uh, china my wife and i spent a month in china two years ago just checking it out because you got to see it once in your life yeah uh, and we got, you know, this, uh, taking my wife three weeks from now for a long weekend in Paris because I'm such a good husband. <laughs> so, I've so, been married, uh, by the way, I should say 58 years. 58 is, years, wow. Which is really hard to believe. Yeah, but, and the and fact we still that you, get along. You do? Yeah. That's great to hear. And you're so young in spirit. I mean, it's. Well, thank you. I mean, I guess that's good. It's great. I mean, what are some of the hardest things about getting older? 
I mean, luckily my health problems are on the minor side, but I think that's the biggest worry and falling. Mm-hmm. You know, you, a lot of old people stop being able to do what they want to do because they break a hip or they hit their head on the ground, and you know, that's what worries me the most. Right. Uh, do you have some sort of exercise or? I, I do my Pilates. I go to Pilates twice a week. You do? Yeah. A, a, like an actual class? An actual class, yeah. All, How long's the class? An hour. So you do two hours of Pilates a week? Yeah, and I, I walk four or five miles every day with right. my dog. So I try to do that, and I, I do a lot of sports still. I think that's one of the great things about New York City is you can just walk around that's a right. lot. And and it's fun to walk. But mm-hmm. I think that's true everywhere, but people would rather get in their cars than walk. You know, I, go to Los Angeles, and, you know, nobody's walking there. No, if you're walking, they think your that's, car broke down. That's and, right, or you're, in tr- <laughs> you're, you're a troublemaker. Yeah, exactly. You just yeah. escaped from a prison. That's right. <laughs> yeah, it's not the culture to walk. There's not even sidewalks in a lot of places. Yeah, absolutely. It's, and, you know, I think... People are getting healthier, although I just saw something that 40% of Americans are obese. Mm-hmm. That's a huge number. Yeah. And that that's costs a lot of money because that's diabetes and all kinds of medical problems from being obese. Right. And, you know, who do you blame? The, f- the food industry? Sure. Mm-hmm. But you, you also, I mean, you're, you seem physically uh, very healthy I and mean, you also seem mentally healthy. Pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty healthy. I mean, you, you're smart. <laughs> Well, I, I, yeah, but then I forget a lot of things. Luckily, I don't forget lyrics. Right. That's, that's, but I used to be able to learn four or five new songs a year. Now, oops, uh-huh. come back, come back. Now I'm lucky if I can learn two a year. I just learned Ophelia, the band mm-hmm. song, which is a great song, but it took me a month before I was ready to perform it. Even though I was rehearsing it, it just didn't quite stick in that quickly. But the fact that you're still learning things is... Well, I think that's what helps me keep young. Both I'm learning things, and I mostly hang out with people who are half my age or younger. Right. And you're, you're challenging your mind. You're, you're still yeah. working and exercising your mind. Absolutely. I, but I, I think, uh, I hope people do that. I mean, that's, that's, that's the way you do enjoy life. Because otherwise, what are you going to do? I mean, we all have one thing for sure. We're going to die. Yeah. And that nobody gets around that deal. Unless science can hurry up and get to it and make us live yeah, forever. But that would be terrible. Yeah. <laughs> you think? Oh yeah, then then yeah, absolutely. So if you want if you could live forever, would you want to? Yeah. I will I'll go for, if I could live to a hundred and you know, another twenty some odd years, that'd be great. Yeah. And not be a burden on my children, you know, or grandchildren or great grandchildren, you know. Have you seen that Ray Kurzweil documentary, The Transcendent Man? No. Do you know Ray Kurzweil? I've no, not really. I've heard the name. But okay, I don't. he's he invented the Kurzweil, the sampler, the um, scanner, OCR technology. Uh-huh. He's basically an inventor, right? But he's working a lot in science and these nanobots that they implant into your bloodstream. Yeah, and they they're like little tiny computer bots that flow around your bloodstream and right. they see cancer cells. They recognize cancer cells and they could zap them. So this this is already yeah. happening. So so what he's saying is that it's possible they could recognize any cell that's older than the previous cell and zap it, so we never age. Yeah, but I I still think uh, the diseases, the poison gas. I, I don't think uh, I don't give the human race more than a thousand years on uh-huh. this planet. Yeah, and that I think is generous. <laughs> Did you read a book called Sapiens? History of the Human Race, very, very important book. Yeah. 
And we're a defective species. Oh, definitely. And you know, and you look at our history of the island of Madagascar, which uh, humans didn't get onto with until like 500 AD. Mm-hmm. And within several generations, they destroyed three quarters of the flora and fauna that were on that island. And these were primitive. This wasn't modern man. This was man, mm-hmm. us. Right. And we're destroyers. Yeah. We and chimpanzees are the only species that kill each other, either for territory or women or whatever. Right. None well, of the others do that. We also have this thing, especially here in, in the U.S., that we have to keep growing and getting bigger and bigger and better. And Yeah. Well, you know, but maybe, I think that's been since the beginning of history. Yeah. Um, I'm going to stand for a minute. Okay, yeah. The other thing I've been getting a lot lately is cramps. Cramps in your leg? Yeah, legs, fingers, too. I, mean, I, I play like four or five hours a day, and I find I've, I started uh, putting my hands in hot water. Like for twenty minutes, just then I think that helps mm-hmm. before playing. And you were out late last night. And I played uh, a show at eleven thirty in the morning. Also, today. Yesterday. Oh yes. Oh, that was at a long day. Yeah. yeah. But I took a long nap in between, so it wasn't it was <laughs> like two <laughs> Okay, so we're at your. Uh, I like we're we're going chronologically, yeah. but we keep zapping yeah, off that's on okay. tangents. You'll that's edit good. it, right? <laughs> Not really. No. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, you, so your documentary filmmaking it kept taking you different places. Yeah, different. And then I started a company. I did a lot of aviation work. Uh, we a friend of mine and I we bought an old B twenty five, which was the a World War Two plane. But the reason you liked it for filming. It had uh, the bomber was in the front of the plane and he had a big glass in front of him. And for making movies, we replaced the glass that was in many pieces and framed with a big hemisphere, semi, you know, hem- yeah, big dome thing in front of where you could put a camera on. So that was one position. There was a side place where the gunner used to be where you could shoot out the side. Mm -hmm. And the plane had twin tails, so there was another gunner position in the end. So for used as a plane used for aviation, it was the ideal thing. And you could pick up a used one for about $10,000. Wow. And we blew an engine and and got a a used, a a brand new engine out of stock for like $2,000. I mean, this was, was... this is in the early 70s. Yeah. So I did that. I did a lot of work for the New York Public Library and uh, doing their documentaries. But to me, it was, the movies, was, it was about fun. You'd start a project, you make some money out of it, and you, you're not employed by anybody. Mm-hmm. Right, you're freelance. I, I, I don't like the idea of two-week vacations for life. You know, yeah. I, wanted, I like to determine when I work and don't yeah that was so that's work that's project by project yeah and i yeah i like that and i still like that Mm -hmm. you know that you you know that you you have a beginning and an end that isn't just a career right that's very much an artist's kind of yeah i think so but you know for a lot of people it's not for them because it's not very stable you're only you're only employed yeah right but you know new york is a freelance town you know one day i'm working for you and one day you're working for me right which is i like that you know it's a collegial kind of thing and the film business was certainly that way right when i was in it and the music business you know not that it's a business but you know that's that's the kind of scene we have here now is that 
you know, whoever gets the gig, you're the boss that day, but, you know, everybody gets along. Yeah. So you're doing the, the documentaries, and did you already have children at the time? I had, by the time I was 26, I had three children. Oh, wow. I was married at 20 and three mm -hmm. kids by 26. Now I have uh, two grandchildren in college and one about to go to college. So Amazing. It is amazing. I mean, for New York City, but... Uh, when we, Susan and I got married, most of our friends were getting married at that age. My brother, her sister, and of maybe the 20 couples I knew then, there are two that are still married. One of our friends and us. <laughs> yeah. You know, which, you know, you know, people got married young, even here in New York City, especially for women. If they graduated college and didn't already have a fiancé or engagement, you know, Women were not in big numbers going to graduate school. Right. Today, it, graduate schools are, you know, 60% women. What What would you say is one of the secrets to a long, successful marriage? Uh, you want the stupid answer or the real answer? I want the real answer. <laughs> the real answer is uh, you've got to be friends. Yeah. I think that's, you know, and, I, you know, I think you also have to have both people have to have professions or in, you know something that they aren't together all the time yeah susan goes to work at eight in the morning comes home six o'clock you know she has a full-time job and Still. wants it that way yeah she works for in the museum world uh -huh. for a long time she was the head of the public library's exhibition program now she works for historical society and she does traveling exhibitions and all kinds of stuff and so the balance of being together yeah i think you know the, if you spend too much time together mm -hmm. the other thing is you know i get asked a lot well what is the secret i you know more by people who are about to get or looking to get married and i say don't look for an a or even an a minus you could lucky if you can find a b plus in in the other person in the other person right. then you're lucky yeah you know b go for it i've gotten c grades all my life so <laughs> <laughs> so what's the stupid answer now that you gave me the, the real answer the stupid answer is sex drugs and rock and roll uh, yeah. that's the stupid answer well that's not going to keep a marriage together no, that, but it's a, that's why it's a stupid answer yeah oh no the other stupid answer is don't ask don't tell oh right, right. Uh, jealousy can ruin any relationship yeah whether you know and you know usually it's imagined well trust is such a big part trust, of it trust absolutely and you got to be able to fight still you know, without, have, arg have an argument about something and make up, you know. So that's have, a, have an argument without the fear of it all blowing up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I think what you said first is really great, like just being good friends. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and have common interests. Even if you don't work together, at least, you know, do things you'll... I mean, Susan isn't a musician, she's, but she'll come, you know, at least half of my shows she'll show up. Uh-huh. Uh, we're both avid readers, so that you know something, and we travel a lot together. Mm -hmm. and, so you guys lived. You went to China just recently and lived there for a month. We we, we traveled around for a month. We didn't. Okay. We, were, we were being tourists. Yeah. What was China like? Uh, very exciting. I mean, there's so much life there, and an incredible amount of building. We took a boat on the Yangtze River, which through the gorges there, you know, it was beautiful. And you come around to Ben. And all you see, 30 new apartment buildings being built in a place that you don't even know the name of. Uh -huh. We went to a town called, town, a city called Chongqing. We had to go through it to get to this boat. Nobody's heard of Chongqing, but it's 16 million people. Do you, do you read or speak Chinese? How did you get I, around? I don't 
read a word of it. Yeah. I did a lot of research before and planned. Uh -huh. you know, got railroad tickets, you know. We had, you know, we, we did it through a travel agent, but, you know, we planned what we wanted to do and did it. Yeah, it seems and so. And then I read, we both read maybe for six months before we went, loads of books about China, Chinese mm. novels, Chinese history, which I like to do before going to a place that, you know, is really different. Right. And it gave us good perspective. So when we talked to people, you know, we weren't totally stupid. Right. And give some depth to the places you're going. Yeah, and exactly. Yeah. So, what would you say uh, was some of the big takeaways? I'm very interested in the culture of places. It, it's hard to say. I mean, China has gone through such an incredible change from Mao to today. Mm -hmm. You know, the people's people couldn't travel before. You know, so all of a sudden. You have, there's so many older Chinese people on the trains going places because they couldn't travel before, and now they can. They weren't allowed to? Or? That's right. They weren't allowed to. You needed permission. Wow. This, you know, under Mao and you know, the, the years that followed that, you lived and worked where they told you. Wow. And if you didn't do it, you got in a lot of trouble, you know, and your whole family could get in a lot of trouble. It was a total authoritarian, crazy system. People it were constantly tattling on each other and now you know now all of a sudden they got the internet they got you know cell phones they got you know but they don't really have the, they don't have the full internet because it's censored in a lot of places yeah probably but you know they're they they're clever people and they're well they it. it's a very well educated population right uh i think they believe in their government too i mean that you know I'm sure there's a lot of people who would like democracy there, but they don't have a history of that. You know, you look at Chinese history for forever, they have been ruled by one strong ruler. Right. Yeah. And now President Xi was just, he, he's, he's going to be for president life. Yeah, forever. Yeah, he, he's not, a, you know, he looks, you know, like a sane person, you know, wears nice Western suits and everything, you know. But, you know, he's an autocrat who's going to rule the way he sees. And yeah. nobody's going to topple him unless somebody right under him shoots him or something. Right, and it's supposed to supposedly a communist country, but by definition, that's not really communism. Well, there is right? no communism anymore. Yeah, yeah. It, it, then I don't think there ever really was. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not, it's not something that humans really are good at. <laughs> that's you know, being communal and work for each other. We tend to want to work for ourselves and our family and our community. That's right. How we progressed, if that's what we've done. Yeah, we're more from, interested in tribes than one big community. It seems. Yeah. Yeah, and, and we're not into sharing the wealth. Right. I mean, people do give. You know, there are, you know, we all do what we can to do, but we don't really share the way a communist society would. And I don't think it would ever work. They were, the communist system was very unproductive. The farms, you know, why should farmers work hard if, you know, they're getting paid to be a farmer and that's, a, you know. Right. And I found, when I was in Russia, I found that, you know, there was, they were all basically... We were doing this thing about the kid driving a go-kart, and I wanted to get above so we could shoot down onto the track. It was, you know, and the guy who was my liaison said, uh, uh, if I got a cherry picker over here, do you think you could spare a carton of Marlboros? I said, absolutely. I knew ahead of time you bring cartons of Marlboros, how you get things there. Because uh -huh. at that time, they couldn't go into but as a foreigner i could go into the store and actually buy a carton of marlboro and then 
and then we got a cherry picker for the afternoon. Now, I'm sure the guy and that equipment were supposed to be doing something else, but there they were. My cameraman was on top of it, and we got these incredible shots of the kids going around in their go-kart, mm-hmm. and it cost me a carton of Marlboros. <laughs> it's pretty good production cost. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I don't even think I turned it in. <laughs> Put that in there. Submit yeah. that with the receipts. Yeah. But, you know, that was, that was another life. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I was down in Nashville doing this film about the French Revolution, and I, I saw the Dobro, and, you know, Pete and uh, Jerry Douglas's workshop down there, and I said, this is what I want to do now. I want to mm-hmm. really get, try to get good at this instrument. Did you stop working on films? No, I, was, I worked on, you know, maybe another 10 years doing films. What year would you say you stopped? Well, I'm, you know, stop doing it as a profession. As a profession, uh, Maybe 2000. Oh, okay. So you did it for a while? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a good 30 years of it. Yeah, from, yeah, absolutely. Maybe sometime. Yeah, and then I, you know, I realized uh, I had enough money that I didn't have to work anymore. Nice. So that was a good thing. And my wife was working, had good health plans. Right. uh, And, uh, I was playing in Washington Square, and a friend came up and says, "Hey, I got a gig tonight. You want to play with us? We're doing. We have a bluegrass." And I said, "Well, you know, I just started playing the dobro, but sure." Mm-hmm. And that was a band called Minetta Creek, and we played all over the village in Brooklyn. And that was my first bluegrass band. As playing as playing, playing dobro, dobro, and you know, I was, you know, and then I started actually learning more of the traditional bluegrass material to sing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you you were already playing banjo and guitar. I mostly was playing guitar, but not after. in a bluegrass style. No, it, to me, I was always a folk singer. Right, me, you know, it, I learned finger pick, Travis picking. That's that's how I play every instrument I play. Uh-huh. I'm not a very good flat picker. Yeah, I can do it, but I pretty much use finger picks. But you've been playing ba- banjo was one of your first instruments, yeah. right? So was it is it hard to make that adjustment from folk to bluegrass? I don't think I've ever made it. You know? uh-huh. I mean, to me, you know, you, it's, you have a hot banjo player with you, you're playing a hot bluegrass. You, uh-huh. know, you got Ellery playing banjo with you, you know, uh-huh. it becomes bluegrass. Yeah. You know, and you get... Ellery yeah. Marshall gets a shout out on the podcast. Yes, I, Ellery, I, I like Ellery. Yeah. Ellery's now playing drums in the country band scene. Which, yeah, I saw that. Which is great. I like Ellery a lot. Mm-hmm. Good yeah, got to keep branching out. I think, and I and play more instruments. You know, I like to try things. I I, uh, I started playing the ocarina again. You know, a little instrument, the sweet potato. Just fool around with it. But you know, mm-hmm. I think multiple working on more than one instrument a day is good for you. you yeah. Know? Do you feel like one instrument kind of informs the other a yeah, little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And it just you know, it's muscle memory too. It's just I find the more you play, the better you get. Yeah. It's it's that simple, and if you're actually working on stuff, and, you know, not just fooling around. But I think it's just moving your fingers. So even four though hours a day, right? And you know, because see, even though you've retired, you really haven't retired. No, I, I'm working harder. I have in the in eight days, I have five paying gigs, mm-hmm. which I don't think I've ever had in my life. Yeah. But now that the Grand Old Opry has moved to New York, the, it, you know, all of a sudden. I got two gigs of there a week, you know, mm-hmm. and it, you know, I'm, 
enjoying it and realizing, you know, this is pretty fun and funny, you know, that at this point in my life that I'm working this hard, but, you know, I'm having a great time doing it. Yeah. And, you know, I have a wonderful singing partner in Kat Minogue, and we just finished a really good album, mm -hmm. Sheriff and the Deputy. Yeah, and, and you have a, a documentary about you coming that, out? That's right, and that's, that's a little scary, but, uh, you know, this... Uh, Brad Hinkle, young filmmaker, said he wanted to make a movie about the sheriff. I said, sure. Mm -hmm. And then uh, after a day or two of shooting, I realized this guy's really good. And, you know, I can, we can do this together. And he wanted to make a movie about me, and I wanted to make a movie about the scene. So we started out the idea we we're going to make two different movies. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I was going to edit it, and he was going to edit his. And then I realized Adobe Premiere is much too hard for me to learn and <laughs> get good at quickly yep. to do well. And we started working together, and it's a film about, about the scene and me. Mm -hmm. uh, Your place in the scene. Yeah, and who I am. And you know, my wife is in it, my dog is in it, my uh -huh. cat is in it. And I mean, it, I find it, my daughter said, who's a writer, she said, Dad, are you really making a film about yourself? I said, well, look, people make, write so, their autobiographies. Yeah. You know, what's the difference? Yeah, it's a memoir. It gives me a little look, and I said, okay. And yesterday, I was at Mona's, and Aidan Grant, who was the bartender there, and a very fine photographer, says, Bob, i got to tell you, I love the movie, but as soon as the credits came, and you and Brad took equal credits as producer and director, he said, that's wrong, you know. And I said, why? He said, well, it looks like a vanity project. Mm. And I said, well, yeah, yeah. And I've been thinking about it, and I asked a couple of the other people what they thought, and I haven't come up, you know, it, it, is it a, sure, everything's vanity, you know. Yeah. If you're a performer, sure. Well, and do I, do I like, have I used this picture to get work? Absolutely. Right. You know, why not? Yeah, and what is the difference between writing an autobiography and or make a, a movie about yourself? I don't yeah. know. I mean, people don't do that normally. People, I don't know. Maybe do. They do. And I just, you know, there is, I, I was sort of unaware of how many documentaries are out there of, you know, mostly young filmmakers on Vimeo and all these different things. You know, a lot of them three minutes long, but there seems to be this like eight, 10 to 15 minutes seems to be what whoever is looking at this stuff really wants to see. Mm -hmm. uh, so that the movie come out 13 minutes, you know, I can still watch it. <laughs> you know, I, you know I, I like watching videos of myself playing, if I'm playing well. I, you know, I right, but talking out. is a different talking story. Talking <laughs> and, yeah, exactly. And, you know, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And looking at yourself talking as opposed to being in costume, playing... Uh, an instrument and singing somebody else's song, you know, mm -hmm. which is easy. Yeah. Yeah. I always found uh, when I was playing music that it was much easier to sing somebody else's song than my own. Interesting. Less yeah. vulnerable. Yeah. Uh, since I never write songs, I never have that problem. Uh huh. Yeah. I, you know, I just, I just don't feel I have anything particularly to say. And I've never liked writing as a, you know, from school days, writing a paper to me is a nightmare. What would you say is one of the hardest things, most challenging things uh, in your life? <sighs> raising children, supporting yourself I was yourself so in young York. raising children <laughs> uh -huh. that we were children raising children. Mm -hmm. And luckily, both Susan and I had our parents here, too, mm. and were very supportive. So it, 
you know, certainly raising children and going through all, and now they're all in their 50s and have had, you know, divorces, you know, problems, you know. But for me, I don't know. I guess uh, I have to think about that one. That's yeah. A, that's hard. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I mean, playing the dobro is a very challenging thing, but it's not, uh, you know, it's intellectually and physically challenging as opposed to life challenging. You know, mm -hmm. it's, yeah, if I play out of tune one night, yeah, what the fuck, you know. Right. There's always other another people, night. Yeah, and, and, you know, and other people play badly on one night or, you know, and, and most people don't even know it, you know. I, right. You know, when you make a mistake, you're aware of it because you've made the mistake. Mm -hmm. And unless it's really egregious, most people don't know. Yeah. The the other musicians on stage might know, but... M yeah. Might. Might, exactly. Yeah. You know, most... I mean, when I'm playing along when somebody else is singing i'm just trying to you know i'm not concentrating on what they're saying i'm concentrating on the beat right you know and, and being as helpful as i can in the groove mm -hmm. for you know that i'm not and making sure i remember what the chords are mm -hmm. don't screw up on that you know would you say you've gathered a bunch of advice that you think you'd parlay to younger artistic types uh I think, I mean, the advice I give, you know, for like, like an Alex Hargrave, what can you give Alex advice? He is so dedicated and such an incredible musician. Mm -hmm. You know, I wouldn't know what to say to him other than keep doing it. And same with like Mike Robinson, who I got to play with yesterday, who just gets better and better and better. He's playing down the Jeff Austin band. And Young guitar player? Guitar player. Yeah. Unreal how, you know. So, you know, I think I, I really respect this group of young musicians for their work ethic. Mm -hmm. And also, they're just nice people. Yeah. You know, really nice people to be around. You know, that, you know if, if they weren't really, if it wasn't fun to be around, I probably, you know, I wouldn't be running jams anymore. I wouldn't be going to Mona's. Right. But it, it is fun. Do you yeah. find the uh, culture, the musician culture, to be different than now than it was maybe in the Gaslight days? Yeah, I think the musicians now are smarter, mm -hmm. just better educated, both musically and worldwide. You know, uh, you know, maybe less stardom driven. Right. I think that's uh, a product of the music industry getting kind of leveled. Yeah, could be. Yeah, there's yeah. not. That people are more realistic now. There's not like I'm going to become a star and be huge, and that's kind of left. Yeah, and it it exactly. I mean, I it, I see at the Opry they're playing all these country videos of the modern country, and everyone looks exactly the same, and everyone sounds exactly the same. Yeah, guys have all thick necks and great physiques, <laughs> and the, the women are all gorgeous. Right. You know, and, you know, made up, and it's kind of meaningless. But they are star. There, you know. I guess there are places you can still be stars, but yeah. they're not too many. Right. Well, some people say that uh, the video video is uh, responsible for a lot of problems in the music industry because once people could see the musician, then you started to get more attractive musicians becoming famous instead of perhaps right. better ones. I don't know if that's true or not. Yeah, but I mean, I, I think it's always been a good deal to be good looking. Yeah, it helps. Not that I'd know, but yeah, I've me heard. neither. You know, I didn't. I, <laughs> you know, no, that's. 
So is there a, a screening for your... I, I'm trying to set up a screening at the City Opry, which mm-hmm. would be a fun place to do it and get the press there. If not, I'll do it at the, one of my jams at the Zinc Bar. Mm-hmm. But I'm still trying to figure all of that out. And you've got a lot of gigs coming up? Uh, we do the, at the City Opry, which just opened in November. A gorgeous space. Have you been there yet? I walked by it, actually, oh. just the other night. Cause, uh, it is the best sound system in New York City, much better than like a city winery. Mm-hmm. Wonderful place. And they have two big performance spaces, one up on the fourth floor and a two-story one on the second floor. What they don't have yet is much of an audience. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're spending, I mean, the building itself, they, re, they tore down, I think, three old buildings and wow. built this incredible space. And it's right in Times Square. Right, right in Times Square. And they have a billboard out there. Mm-hmm. And the first time I walked by and saw Sheriff and the deputy on Broadway up there in lights, <laughs> I said, it's all downhill from here. Can't, can't get better than this. And then I said, oh, yeah, maybe I could go play the Grand Old Opry. But then I said, that's not going to happen. You never know. You never know. Yeah. That, that's on my you know, I mean, one in ten list. When you were uh, 19 at the Gaslight hanging out, did you ever think that your life would become what it has? No. I had no idea. Yeah. yeah I, and partially because I didn't plan too much of it. I just let it happen mm-hmm. know, and dealt with the moment. You know, which I think, you know, luckily I have that personality. You can go with the flow. I like, yeah, and, and, and try to really be in the moment. Not mm-hmm. just go with it, but be in it and, and affect it. Right. That's yeah. very uh, Buddhist of you. Yeah, I, I believe in Buddhism. You do? All the, the, you know, that, that's the one that makes the most sense yeah, to me. Yeah, because they say all we have is the now, the moment now. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to get into that. Yeah. I mean, it, it's easier to do it when you're playing music. Mm-hmm. You know, and you're really of your full concentration in that, singing a song. But, you know, then I, my mind wanders. It's, it's really strange where one's mind can go. Yes, uh, thinking about the laundry while you're up there playing. The exactly, <laughs> or, or checking out somebody by the door. Do I know, what's the name of that person? I, I know, you know, and then, you know, yeah, I, you know. But I, I. But is that in the moment? Maybe that is. It your is. Moment. It is partially, but I, you know, I would like to be able to, you know, when I feel I'm really singing well, I'm really telling the story, right? You know, and I'm not having a problem with my voice. There's no. I'm not, no sore throat, no, you know, my pitch is pretty good. Yeah. You know, and I feel, that, you know, that, you know, and that people are listening. Right. You know, that's an important thing. And at Mona's, you get that. You yeah. Know, and, and at the Zinc Bar, you know, people listen. The Opry, it's more your a sideshow. Right. And I, when you're doing the jams, it's different than a performance because it's more improvisational. You're feeding yeah. off the other. And, yeah. And, you know, a lot of other people, it's not my show. I, you know. Right. If I'm at the Opry with Cat, between the two of us, we'll sing 15 of the 20 songs that we do. Right. And we have, you know, Bob Abrahams, who is our often partner in this, he sings, but Mike, and Larry Cook plays bass with us there, so that's, uh, it's mm-hmm. always great to have a good bass player. Yeah. I hold, learned that. Hold it down. Yeah. Yeah. And Larry's a great singer, too. Mm-hmm. So it's it's fun and you know try to learn new songs. That that's you know I, I think I know about a hundred songs. I have a list. Wow. That I think I know, but I'd like to you know there's some that I don't do anymore that I want to bring back in, and then there's some which I've, songs I've always liked and never really learned, and I'm trying to like Ophelia, mm-hmm. you know, which always liked the song and never you know I do other band songs, but I never learned it. So yeah. like. 
uh, I have to write out the words on my computer with big print and carry it with me for days when I'm on the subway. I, I just, just read them. Read them because I, I have... It, I cannot learn stuff by somebody telling me, sing this line. You know, I just doesn't, I have to visualize it. Every song that on my list, I know exactly how many verses are. With, you know, any song you gave me, I'd say four verses, three. It's just because I see it that way. You're seeing it visually. Does it the, help to just sing it over and over and over? Sure. But, I mean, the more you sing a song, the easier it is. Yeah. Yeah. But luckily now I'm singing probably performing a hundred songs a week mm -hmm. you know not a hundred different songs you know but that's a lot of singing and playing it's a lot of lyrics yeah yeah i always find it's the lyrics that's the hardest thing oh sure do. yeah you, you hear the chords you got it and, and unless you're just being sloppy and not concentrating yeah and if you if that's you, the easy part if you sing the second verse first by mistake oh, it's all oh that's a hard one because yeah. that's that linear thing right i did that i have a long it's good night cincinnati a really terrific song lots of words and i started on the second verse mm. and, I, and then i threw over a couple of solos just to see if i could bring it into my head the what first. the first verse was which <laughs> i did and then i sang the second verse again i didn't mean to do it yeah. I meant I wanted to go to the third verse, but there were enough people to take solos, and you know nobody noticed the difference. You know, right? Do you find that it's strange with the brain that if you're trying to remember something, it just doesn't come? Absolutely. I, the best just, thing is to breathe and relax, stand up straight, and let it. Hopefully, it's there. Just trust that. And if brain. it isn't there, take play a solo. That's the <laughs> other thing. I, I mean, I've trusted that, and most. Yeah, I would say ninety-nine out of a hundred times. The words are there right but every so often but you know then i can just play a dobro solo and see if i can bring it back together and yeah you know. mm -hmm. maybe think about the yeah. person that or, just or, walked in and then yeah. uh, <laughs> the you know, verse will come cat, back you know, something like, cat, what, what song am i singing and she'll say yeah and she'll tell me what i'm singing <laughs> nice so you've got a website people can find your shows uh i do have a website that i don't do a whole lot on but mm -hmm. i do i'm on, on facebook and the sheriff and the deputy has a website, but we haven't really spent enough time working on it. So now <laughs> it's just, you know, play music and, uh, you know, we're in contact with the radio stations about our new CD. I'd like, I'd like that to get played. I don't know. It's, it's not that easy, but you never know. If you don't throw it out there and see what happens. Yeah. Yeah, and if it doesn't happen, you know, it's, I'm very happy with the CD. I'll listen to it. And uh -huh. you know, a lot of friends like it. But, you know, I just want to keep playing. Yeah. You know, that's, to me, I, you know, I realize how lucky I am that, that I can still hang with these really hot musicians and that I'm, you know, going out and playing all the time. Yeah, and holding your own. Sort of. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. You know, part of it, you know, I, I'm the old sheriff and, you know, I have all these old stories to tell. And, you know, I think mm -hmm. people are interested in that. And that, you know, I represent a certain continuity here. Mm-hmm. You know, even though I was out of out of it for twenty, thirty years, but I was there at, in the sixties, and here I am back in the nineties again. Mm -hmm. And then I started running jams about twenty five years ago, which I've been I'm still doing, and I love doing. Mm -hmm. I, I love bringing people together to sing, and I unlike the Mona's jam, which is like an invited jam, which I love. You know, because it's the, my jam is everybody's welcome you want to sing a song what key and your jams at zinc bar at the zinc bar and it's a monthly jam third monthly. wednesday of every month okay and anyone can show up anyone can show up i'm not particularly interested in washboards or you know <laughs> saxophones 
but you know any kind of bluegrass instrument you know, flutes i love flutes and that but uh -huh. and you know i encourage there's, there's a lot of you know i don't ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a thing Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Non-professional musicians who love to come to the jam and play, but you know they have jobs, they do other things, mm -hmm. and I really want them to feel that you know they can come sing a sing a song. Yeah, you know, there's, there's you know, it's, you know, and it, it happens other places, not just my jam, but you know, certainly Sonny's jam is that way, and mm -hmm. you know, I mean, there's so many musicians in town who want to play music, and I think that's great. Right, and it doesn't have to be to become a star. It could just no, be for the joy it, of music. Absolutely, because yeah. there, that, yeah, especially for that, mm -hmm. you know, because there is joy in music. Right, as and, you experienced in Russia playing Beatles songs, that's and all right. of a sudden, <laughs> yeah. no, music, yeah, music and dance come way before speech in the human life. Right, you yeah, know, they were banging drums, humming, imitating bird song. I mean, there's a lot of theories about how we started talking and singing and you know a lot of it came from animals mm -hmm. know, we're talking maybe 30 40 thousand years ago yeah it's one of the big differences i find with music and stand-up comedy for example yeah. is that with music it's the you're 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 portraying emotion you know you're conveying emotions right. and with stand-up comedy it's very heady it's very intellectual you have to know the right words to like kind of make a point right it's a very different coming from a very different place uh, comedy used to be part of the country scene. There was always the comics, and w w we don't have that. We have nobody. Maybe Max can do it if he really puts his mind to it. Who can tell a joke on stage or you know do a lot of the things that were part of the original country shows? And I tried one. I'm a bad joke teller, so uh -huh. I tried it once. And, no, no, no. Jokes in between the songs. Yeah, or some, or do something you know that in, to introduce a song. They would do these patters back and forth about the the city guy coming to the country and getting lost and you know they'd, there'd be was part of the grand old opry right and other country shows yeah we don't have that mm. maybe maybe you got to do that for us <laughs> we'll you see know, we, i've been trying playing at the opry there encourage us to talk to the audience and even you know so i've been trying to get better at that too right which is you know it's much easier just to sing but you know I can tell, you know, some about the song or where are you guys from? You know, and get engaged people there. They seem yeah, to like that. They do like that. Yeah. The other thing is that's really strange about the opera, the musicians cannot drink until after they're finished work. <laughs> they don't trust you. <laughs> but, this goes back to the opera probably from the twenties. Uh -huh. There's this rule. 
Right. The musicians cannot order or have drinks bought for them until they are finished playing. Uh, I've seen places limit the musicians to one before, but never zero. (laughs) I mean, don't they want some sort of looseness on stage? I don't know what I think they're trying to figure it out. Right. You know, right. They, ha- they haven't yet. You know. Mm-hmm. I would like to help them. I hope the place stays open. I mean, the sound system is so good. Mm-hmm. It is such a pleasure Just on stage. The, it's... On stage and outside. I, I'm. I my Dobro is wireless. I I trip over wires, so uh-huh. I have a setup where I can just wander. And so I, during the sound check, I will go out to where the audience is. So it's amplified wirelessly. Your Dobro. It's, I have a transmitter right. that goes to a receiver right. that then goes through a bunch of pedals mm-hmm. to the board. Very cool. Yeah. yeah. I always say with music, there's like two shows happening. There's the show that's on stage because yeah. it's your own sound system with the monitors. Then there's the show that's in the audience and they have a totally different well, set of speakers. I, what I was surprised was how close the, um, the sound was on stage to outside that's what you want yes absolutely i mean there was more reverb outside but that the place is two stories high so Mm -hmm. you you expect that uh but they got a sound the the sound people you know they're up in a balcony Mm -hmm. incredible equipment in every way top level mics amplifiers everything's there makes it such a pleasure it does that's right Um, I just hope they can stay open. Mm-hmm. You know, they they have to do more publicity. They they know it, mm-hmm. and they just you know, maybe they're doing like a soft open. Well, I think they thought it was the winter, and they would do something later. I also think maybe they thought that hey, where the Opry, you know, of course people are going to show up, right? But this is New York City. Yeah, there's a lot of things to show up for in New York City. I've been performing at LOL Comedy Club, which is right across yeah. the street. Yeah from there and they're packing them in i know yeah so i don't know what maybe the opera needs someone out there kind of pulling people in they need something yeah but, you know but I, you know that's i think they do they want to they may do the opening of the movie there and you know do a big publicity thing but you know i'm not going to make a difference for them what they need to bring in major acts to right. get people aware of what's going on mm-hmm. and, I, and i keep telling you, you got to engage the local musicians there are some incredible musicians in this town some of us are playing there and some don't even know you exist right like mike robinson said you know i, I sort of knew it was there but i you know i had never played there yeah and he was amazed i mean he's even though there was 20 people in the audience of a place that holds 250 mm-hmm. uh just how good the sound was and how relaxed it was you know because of the sound was so good it's really inspiring for me to hear how inspired you are <laughs> you know because you're going to be 80 soon you said right, right. that's just and you're more inspired than a lot of people in their 20s and 30s <laughs> Well, I don't know. I guess that's again goes back to luck. That's who I am. Yeah. You know, I, well, but no, it's effort too. Yeah, it, it is effort. It's but consciousness. I, yeah. I, it, I'm not that, that hard a worker, but mm-hmm. I like to be engaged. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I'm probably working harder than I did when I was 30. Mm-hmm. Now. There you go. That's but, why it's inspiring to me. Yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate yeah. that. <laughs> Thanks so much for well, uh, thank coming you. and this talking. Totally fun. And I, uh, you have to come visit my studio. Absolutely. Anytime. Thanks so much. You're very welcome.